Hi, this is Shivani Samaya, and welcome back to the Financial Executives Podcast. For finance leaders in the media industry, digitization and the COVID-19 pandemic have taken a toll on traditional business models. From the growing popularity of a paywall-based finance model to the inherently controversial debate surrounding data sharing, content leaders are having to grapple with an ever-changing landscape. As part of our longer, ongoing forward-thinking series, I had the pleasure to speak with President of The Guardian US, Regina Buckley, to truly understand how legacy publications are navigating these uncharted waters. I'm so glad to be kicking off the first session of our fourth quarter of Forward Thinking with Regina Buckley. And Regina, I'm so excited to welcome you to our virtual platform. Thank you, excited to be here. So Regina, I always like to do this and I I know that the attendees have the opportunity to read your bio to kind of understand you, but I'd love to hear from you firsthand about how your background and a little bit about how you found yourself to specifically the Guardian US. Yeah, sure. So I, uh, like many women of my generation, started out in media as an executive assistant and I did that for probably four or five years. Um, Before I found my way into a job working in media finance at Time Incorporated, which is no longer with us, but I, you know, we all miss it. Uh, And so I spent about 20 years of my career at Time Inc. And one of the beautiful things about working at a big company is that it affords you the, the privilege of doing all sorts of things. So I started out in the days where every one of our 30 brands had its own finance team and we had 25 people in our finance team at Time Magazine. And uh, so I started as an advertising revenue finance person. This is a job that does not exist anymore because we've all been so kind of scrunched into the middle. Uh, But I was an ad finance person. And from there, I kind of bounced around a lot. Um, I worked in platform partnerships. I was the chief of staff to the CEO at one point. But always, most of my career and background, I spent as as an FP&A business partner working at almost, I think, by the time I left, I had worked at every brand at Time Inc. except Sports Illustrated. Um, and then how I got to the Guardian, my just when Time Inc. was acquired by Meredith Corporation a few years back, uh, I kind of was just taking a pause and didn't really know what I wanted to do next. And a former boss of mine had come to the Guardian and she tapped me on the shoulder. And like many of us, I loved working with her and I figured, sure, I mean, I don't have a huge background in daily news, um, but sounds like fun. I'll give it a go. And I and I kind of just held my breath and jumped a little bit. And here I am, here I am today. That's really insightful. I often hear a lot about how some of the greatest moments in our life come from like the greatest risks we take. So it's, it's exciting to hear that, you know, you found yourself in a place after taking a risk yourself. Um, but you, you know, you mentioned a lot of your positions within media and finance functions, but specifically in the journalism and media industry. And I want to understand, is there something specific that compelled you about the media industry to want to get involved within the finance functions of the said industry? 
Yeah, I mean, I uh, I am the daughter of an artist and an electrical engineer. Imagine that. It's a little bit. My I have two sisters. We're all a little bit right brain, left brain, and so for me, primarily, I love being analytical and being able to be analytical in a creative environment is the reason that I came to media in the first place, and definitely it has proven that out. Um, whether it's creativity, working with journalists, or creativity, just given what's been going on in this crazy industry for the last 15 or so years, um, there's plenty of room to be creative in, in one's approach to business, too. That, that's great, and I, I, I like that you married the creative aspects to the analytical aspects. A lot of the general assumptions that I hear about finances is limited in the creativity that it offers. So it's it's compelling to, to hear from you that you were able to find yourself in a place where you were really able to hone in the kind of history of you know how you grew up and to be able to work in an environment where you were actively cultivating your creativity. And I think that's really important for the world that we live in to have that fine balance between creativity and analytical. Um, so it's great to hear that. And I'm interested in getting the conversation started a little bit more towards, um, you know, the functions that we're here to talk about today. So media and finance specifically. And I think it's important to have a setup. Um, and so I want to understand from you as a media executive who's been in the year for, you know, tremendous amount of time, in what ways has or have the big media business models evolved in the last 25 years? Yeah, so uh, let us count the ways. Let's see how many of them we can get through in, in the mere 50 minutes that we have. But I'm gonna start with two that I think are probably the biggest changes, or the biggest changes that I observe and experience in my, have experienced in my world. The first one is, there's a fundamental change in the way that content creators speak to consumers in that like in the old days when I was working in magazines, if Real Simple, a brand that I worked on for many years, arrived in a consumer's mailbox, it, it, uh, nobody knew if she read it, nobody knew if she read it, what she read, um, and even advertisers didn't know whether she had read it. The, the editors were kind of, to a certain extent, flying blind a little bit, but the culture that grew up around editing really was about editors every day coming in, whether it was a daily newspaper or a monthly fashion magazine, deciding what it was that the, the world needed to hear, right? And then you'd get some letters to the editor a little bit later, but fundamentally, they were every month they were creating what they thought was best and and the evolution of digital media of course has turned that on its head where you get up to the minute up to the second responses from people i mean think about like a facebook live video where someone's teaching someone how to put on a lipstick or something the the feedback is is immediate and so the nature of what the editors do of their in and of their own right has changed significantly from a business model perspective, first and foremost, I think the biggest change is around what I was talking about before that had to do with advertisers saying, we say, oh, we have a circulation, we have a million people a month receive this publication. Well, the advertiser had to believe that a million people would actually open that publication and see their ad. 
Well, now, not only do you know if someone has seen your ad, you know if if you're buying an ad through Facebook, you know all kinds of things about that person, about who saw your ad, about what they did, whether they took any action from that ad. And the, the amount of data that a Facebook has on any of us, as we're reading about in the newspapers, or even a Google has on us between the fact that they own our email inbox, they know where we travel, they see what kinds of things we search for when we want to shop. The, the information, and this is really all about the data privacy movement that's happening right now, but the information that those two platforms in particular can provide to an advertiser is so above and beyond what, say, The Guardian can provide on a consumer who may come to us through Google search, but they don't sign in, we don't know who they are. And so the value kind of proposition kind of turned on its head where the digital media companies, especially the biggies, have all kinds of information, give very, give very detailed feedback about to an advertiser about who their ad is reaching, how, when, and publishers by and large are not able to provide that kind of information. And so when you started to see a few years ago the challenges that we were facing in the news industry around here, around everywhere, particularly for the local publications, it really fundamentally was because of that, because we don't have this vast trove of data on our consumers. And by and large, the digital business model was working almost entirely on the basis of digital advertising. And so at the beginning, certainly, and, and if there's two trends to call out, it's those two things. It's just the way that editors behave and create news and content. And then secondarily, um, where we get our revenue from and how we get our revenue and how now we have to fight for revenue and against these players that didn't exist not all that long ago. You've mentioned a couple things that I, I picked up on that I actually will, will dig into a little bit later, but there's two things specifically that you mentioned that I think is a really great transition into the next question. Firstly, you used the term content creators, which um, as someone of my generation feels like that's kind of come up with the rise of social media. And I think you touched upon that with, you know, Facebook coming up and with there being this, this data lake essentially that um, is being used to kind of drive content to make sure that people are seeing what they want to see. And so it seems like the rise of social media has also played a huge impact on traditional online business models. And I emphasize online business models because I know that The Guardian US from the onset has been an online publication. So can you talk about a little bit more specifically about the impact of social media, the rise of social media, the impact that that has had on your online publication specifically? Sure. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit, if it's okay with you, I'm going to talk a little bit more broadly, and I'm going to start by categorizing news and lifestyle content, because I think right now we're kind of, fa we face two different things from social media. So in news, um, I'll speak more broadly. This is not particularly an issue for The Guardian, because The Guardian does not, by and large, rely on uh, platform partnerships for a lot of our traffic. But for a lot of news publications, we 
when we post something onto our channels in Facebook or Snapchat or wherever it is, particularly in Facebook, because someone will see it, click on it, and then come back to us through it. And so we have this, I don't know what you want to call it. It's love, hate, you know, strange bedfellows situation with the social media companies, because on the one hand, they're stealing all of this money that used to be ours and we're, we're facing dire challenges in the industry because all the advertising dollars are flowing by and large straight into those into the Googles and Facebooks of the world. And at the same time, we are relying on them for traffic. And so the when I was working at Time Inc. and leading partnerships, this was kind of my job was to work with Facebook to try and balance the traffic situation that we relied on so heavily um, with a lot of the challenges that they were presenting to us just by the way that they existed. So that's news and, and really media more broadly. On the other hand, and, and just one little piece of something to say before I move off that is that I think we have all, I think I can speak for many of the, my colleagues in this industry to say we have all been starting to learn to not be so reliant on the platforms in the way that we were maybe five or 10 years ago, just because they their decision-making has nothing to do with us. And you really don't want a business model that's predicated on something that has nothing to, that like is at the whims of someone who's, who's doesn't have your interests in mind in any way, shape or form. And the other thing I would say about social media is that for lifestyle publications, I think there's a whole new thing happening that has to do with influencers. So um, just to touch on it briefly, because I think it's a challenge that now that people are more and more willing to pay for content in the news arena, I still see a hesitation for people to pay for content in the lifestyle arena. And I think it presents unique challenges for that area. And I think one of the reasons people are hesitant to pay for content is that the barrier to entry for good content content and lifestyle is not that high. It's not as high as it is for us to have like a month's years long investigative program with many staff journalists covering it. And so the rise of influencers really has made a huge impact on that business in particular. Um, getting back to my example before, if someone's going to show you how to make a pouty lip, uh, whether it's a media influencer or a highly paid magazine editor, it, it almost doesn't matter. And so I think that's a particular challenge um, for the lifestyle universe to try and figure out how to get consumers, how to create content that is unique enough that consumers are willing to pay for it. So I'm really glad that you touched upon the notion of paying for content, because I think that leads me on to my next question. But before I go on, there's an audience question that's come in that you touched upon very briefly when you mentioned, you know, having or creating the right balance. And you mentioned that you're not as reliant on the information from these companies as you were, for, for example, five or seven years ago. So what the, the audience question that we have is, all of these social media companies, they know a great deal about us, which is really great for advertisers. But how do the excesses of these practices really impact the consumer? And how can industry leaders like yourself create, seek to create the right balance? 
Between, yeah. So the, first and foremost, the reason that all this data privacy legislation is coming up is if people, tr so one way that you will, that we all have experienced that the Facebooks of the world or, or indeed any media organization will use data is if you go shopping, you're looking at this pen online and then 20 minutes later, you're reading the news and lo and behold, there's an ad for that pen hanging out like right in your line of sight. That's because of the data that companies are collecting from you and following you across the web. By and large, there are many benefits to companies collecting that data. The problem starts to happen when bad actions start to take place. The Guardian is pretty well known for a big piece of investigative journalism we did a few years back on a company called Cambridge Analytica, discovered that Facebook was actually taking the information from, let's say, my Facebook feed, they had permission to, and then would find my friends and Facebook was selling that information to another marketing company. And that was something that to me feels like an invasion of privacy. Nobody ever asked me if I was okay with them doing that. And yet they would do it. Another example is Google knows if you search in your Google map, they, it knows where you're like my Google calendar knows where I had a drink with a client the other night, my Google map, look at that. At the minute that I was getting to leave to go to that drink with a client, Google Maps popped up, told me how to get there. So all of these are all things that Google knows about us. And if Google treats our data with respect, there by and large isn't necessarily a problem. It's that no one can trust any company of that size 100% of time to treat our data with respect. And I think those are the big challenges. Now, Google itself is starting to make some changes in its browsers and um, following on Apple. So Apple is an interesting player in the media space, just to go off topic for a very brief second, because Apple doesn't make money from advertising by and large. And so the collect, that's why you'll hear Apple always talk about how it's first and foremost, it's worried about protecting its consumers' data. It can afford to do that because it doesn't make money off consumers' data, whereas Google makes almost all of its money off consumers' data. And so Apple already, if you are browsing around on a Safari browser, the amount of data and the type of data that is collected and tracked on you is going to be very different from what happens if you're in a Chrome browser, for example. So the leadership that's going to be needed to change that dynamic is going to have to come from the companies that are using the data to begin with. So Google has started talk about, um, about making adaptations around the little things that they drop on your data that follows you around the internet, they're called cookies. And, um, but my personal belief is that really legislation is going to be needed if, if meaningful changes actually ever, ever gonna happen. It's just simply not in the best interests of either Google or Facebook or anyone who's using the data to start limiting the data that they're able to collect. You, you talked a lot about um, revenue streams, and I think that's a great transition over onto the next question that I wanted to ask you, which is, 
The Guardian has moved to a donation model that brings in significant revenue. How did that change your approach to your traditional business model? And what impact did that have on the finance function? So first to say just a little bit of a very brief history primer on The Guardian. The Guardian is actually owned by a private trust. We're a 200-year-old organization based in, in the UK. And the purpose of the trust has always been, first and foremost, to serve our readers. And so for many years when I was at Time Inc. and we were all interested in growing our scale and the whole industry was trying to get as much scale and there was a proliferation of clickbait and The Guardian was just kind of in its place, doing its thing, serving its readers. So The Guardian's business model, by and large, has always been to start from the place of serving its reader and that makes us unique and it affords us the ability to do things that are different. The fact that we're run by this private trust, we're not, um, we're not subject to the vagaries of the public markets like we were when I was at Time Inc or like many of our competitors are. So um, the reader, so, so you can imagine that at the Guardian there was a lot of thinking before we decided that we were going to ask our readers for donations. But as we started to see the success of paywalls more and more around our industry, we decided that putting a paywall up was not right for us at this moment, at that particular moment in time. Still, we have not made the decision that that's right for us. So we do not have a paywall. But if you come to visit us or read some of our journalism, you will be served with a request for a donation, please consider giving us money. And what I will say, particularly this community here, um, as fellow finance people, it changed everything for us. I, I honestly don't know that we would still be here in the way that we are here if we were still relying on competing with Google and Facebook for advertising dollars. I think that the subscription model, the donation model, whatever it is, has breathe life into the news industry and into the ability of actual companies to survive being journalists in a way that I, I couldn't see three or four years. I, I, if you had asked me what the future of news was, I would have said it probably has something to do with news going into the public trust. And so even as recently, so I've been at The Guardian three years now, a little bit less than a year. I've been in my president role before that. I was a CFO and COO. And even in those three short years, when I first started here was the first year that we, that uh, our revenue was 50% advertising, 50% reader donations. Just a short couple of years later, I think I was looking the other day, it's about 65% reader donations and uh, 35% um, ads. And so I, I'm not a believer that, that, there's one or the other. I think the solution for any business is probably going to be a mix. Never mind then e-commerce and audio and events and all the other things that we're all um, involving ourselves in. But the reader donation model has been a savior for the Guardian and the generosity of Americans like never ceases to stun and uh, to stun me and make me borderline emotional like it really is pretty amazing the way that americans have stepped up for the guardian and for the notion of you know speaking truth to power over the last couple of years i think that's great um you mentioned a lot about donation models subscription models and 
I personally, I, I understand that a lot of these new online publications have adopted and are continuing to adopt a number of new monetization strategies. Amongst them, I found that the most popular new strategy is the paywall, uh, the paywall model. So is it possible to run a successful news outlet while keeping all the content behind the paywall? What do you think of that? So I think, so what you, when you start talking about, uh, this is where we start talking about trade-offs, right? So if we just remove the ancillary products for a moment and just think about consumer revenue and advertising revenue, right? In the advertising revenue world, the more traffic you have, the more eyeballs spending more time on your pages, the more ads you can serve to them. So scale on that side of the house is the name of the game. You want as many clicks, as many views as you possibly. From a reader perspective, what you want, what you're serving is quality, right? And you're serving not only quality, but also something that's been interesting to me as these consumer business models have evolved is that my, the journalism that we created at time way back when, when I, when, when it was just a print magazine and you and I were talking about this earlier, Shivani, this idea of like balanced news and 50% right, 50% left and every news organization has to come down in the middle. I actually don't know if that is necessarily what consumers are telling us that they want to pay for. And so I do think that the, the consumer revenue piece is going more say niche, but it's more specific. I don't think anyone wants to pay for something that's highly generalized because what's your what's unique in that? Why am I going to shell out my hard-earned dollars to be able to participate in something that doesn't feel super special? It feels mass and generalized. Whereas in the advertising side, mass is that's how you make your money. And so I think every business, everybody, every media business is in the process, myself and my team here included, of like figuring out what is the right balance for us between those two business models fundamentally. You'll find, you know, there's a proliferation of newsletters, people um, having newsletter subscribers. Substack has said it has no interest in serving ads. Well, Substack being the, the, um, the company that is the infrastructure behind many of these popular newsletters. Well, that works okay in that world because these are primarily very narrow topics where people are willing to pay more versus something that's, you know, much, much broader. So, yes, I do think 100% paywall can work. Yes, I think zero paywall can work. It depends on your brand and what mix of that works right for you. And going off of what you said it kind of ties in with the brand, but also you had mentioned that it really comes down to the quality. And I, I emphasize quality because there is um, an attendee question that's come in that I find pretty interesting, which speaks to the skepticism of the public in relation to real and fake news, um, especially in the last couple of years and how that's impacted economic impacts that the, you know, the media industry's undergone, you know, specifically looking at the staff that works on news gathering and reporting. Um, what business model will be the most successful in the future 
ad only, subscription only, or hybrid that can still work to verify the accuracy of the news that it's reporting. Mm -hmm. So what I will say is that good, it sounds almost like, so obvious to say, good journalism is expensive. I see what goes into the creating of good journalism. I see what goes into the creation of lighthearted journalism, things that, that may not be as specific, but I, good, well-researched journalism is expensive. I don't, based on my experience, suspect that there is a world in which ads, and this is why I say, like, I don't know if we'd still be here today. I don't know that there's a world in which an advertising only model can support what it takes to put together a newsroom that truly is able to feel comfortable with itself about the fact checking and the, and the diligence that's required to do anything that's of quality. So I definitely believe that. I also, look, there's a thing about fake news. I was here at the Guardian in that tumultuous pandemic election, Black Lives Matter year. And, and um, there really is something to be said for, oh, I lost my train of thought. Hmm. It'll come back to me. Sorry and we'll touch upon that's okay and we'll touch upon um some of the sociopolitical changes to the media landscape in a little bit but i want to just change gears because we've been talking a lot about the disruptions of traditional business models for legacy publications online publications be it the change of content that people and consumers want to the change of monetization strategies but i want to focus specifically now on the covid-19 pandemic and given that the media industry itself was going through all of these changes, I can only imagine the pandemic to have come and worsened the entire situation. Do you agree or do you disagree? I both disagree and agree. <laughs> how's, that, how's that for a news organization employee's answer? Um, so it's hard to the demand for news and the need and the recognition of the public for the role that news organizations have in holding together our social fabric in times of crisis was reinforced and highlighted during the pandemic for sure. So we, like many other news publications between the pandemic and the election year and the Black Lives Matter movement, we had a lot of incremental, we had a lot more traffic to our site than we did normally. We were, I think, very surprised by the way that as a digital news organization, putting out, continue keeping the website going was not actually, yes, we had lips like everybody else, but it wasn't like a chaotic disaster by any stretch of the imagination. Relatively easily, we transitioned from being here in this office to going to being at home. So I do think that the in terms of the fundamentals of what was happening with the business models, that stuff just kind of continued to evolve in the way that it had been evolving. But what it actually did show us, you know, it was a, it was a, difficult and rewarding year to be a journalist because I know I can speak for the team here. They work their butts off at home, you know, blurred lines between what's life and what's work for a good 12 to 18 months. It was really rough for them. And, um, 
And yet at the same time, I think they never felt that their job was more important than, than before. And, and so, so that's how it changed us and our organization from a fundamental, you know, business model structure perspective. I don't know that it changed all that. The one thing I would say maybe is the proliferation of streaming services, ultimately news, print, any kind of media is competing for people's attention with all kinds of other media platforms and all kinds of social media ad infinitum. And so um, the proliferation of just media in that period maybe changed the dynamic a little bit more and added more competition, I guess. I don't know, in terms of people paying for content, people, all these new streaming services popping up. And I think people are finally are starting now to think, well, gosh, I paid, there's a lot of content I pay for in my life. And, you know, maybe my husband actually a couple of months ago, like came in to the kitchen with a piece of paper where he had added it all up. I was like, do you know what we spend on? Um, I don't think we're the only household going through that right now. So um, from a business model perspective, I would say maybe that was the one thing that I think uh, did and will continue to impact us. You are most definitely not the only household to have gone through that. <laughs> I saw that because I, I was doing um, my own internal um, kind of check of, okay, during the pandemic, I've signed up for a lot of newsletters, a lot of content, some of which I didn't even realize my free subscriptions had ended. And so I, I can relate to your husband putting together that sheet to be like, wow, we are paying for all of this content. But it's really interesting because you talk about the competition that came about with the pandemic as being one of the challenges that perhaps didn't exist before the pandemic. Besides um, the, the the new challenges that have come up with, the, you know, the global pandemic, digitization. I want to talk now a little bit more about the sociopolitical changes that have affected, you know, the business as usual for model for The Guardian. So my question to you is, has the change in sociopolitical um, landscape in general, has it affected your business model at The Guardian? And if so, how? So where it hasn't affected us is that we really, you know, we are a mission-based organization and we, uh, we are here to speak truth to power. And, you know, our mission is... Um, to the journalists here is very clear. And so from that perspective, we've always sort of functioned as a mission-based organization. Um, our mission as stated is to use clarity and imagination to build hope. And that is what the guardian is about. That is, that is what infuses our organization. I would say the one thing that has had a very visible and meaningful impact on the way that we operate day to day, certainly in my world is the murder of George Floyd and the the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, we, like every newsroom in America, had a reckoning about how we cover issues and whether we're actually qualified to be covering issues of race if we have a mostly white newsroom. And so we have uh, hired a few people. We, are, we have a diversity initiative that covers not just the journalism side, but the business side. We have a leadership team that meets every week. We have like goals and timelines and we hold ourselves accountable. And it has 
most definitely changed the way that, you know, what business as usual looks like for our organization. And I'm sure it has for many organizations, news organizations or otherwise, but, um, but most definitely, you know, we really had to take a hard look at ourselves to say, you know, for progressive organization, how are like, we should be showing, we should be a model for other people. Do we, do we feel like we're a model for other organizations? And if not, let's go about fixing that. So that has definitely been something that's taken up a lot of my time and mind space and has already, you know, been returning really positive results. So I'm, we're all, I think, really proud of our efforts in that area. I definitely agree that I think the, the, the death of George Floyd brought about a lot of, um, it raised a lot of diversity, equity, inclusion conversations, not just within your organization individually, but this is happening across the board. So it's, it's really great to hear about organizations that are taking these initiatives very seriously into the core of their business models as well. So thank you for sharing that with us. And the question that I have for you now is we've talked a lot about the difficulties that the media industry has faced, be it with um, digitization, the COVID-19 pandemic, the ever-changing sociopolitical landscape. So as a media finance leader, can you share with us some strategies that other media finance leaders can adopt to overcome the difficulties that come with these um, challenges that we're facing, be it the digital pivot, the COVID-19 pandemic, or the change in the sociopolitical landscape? Yeah, I mean, uh, some of this has, look, I, I am a, I am in my core and in my heart a finance professional, but some of this, um, I don't think anyone will be surprised that managing organizations and managing change is really mostly about people. And so this is, yes, I'm speaking to my finance peeps here, but also just broadly speaking. Um, what I have learned the hard way is that change in the abstract is appealing to absolutely everyone. Everybody is on board with change writ large. Very few people are excited about change when it actually happens because what change looks like is people leaving organizations. It looks like my responsibility is changing. It looks like having to take a perfectly good report, like change the way that I was looking at this reporting. It has to do with learning new things, which is scary. And I, um, for me, if I could turn back the clock and just focus on the things that I have done through this crazy transformation in media and leading so many teams through so much change. I think if I had had an appreciation at the outset for how difficult change feels when it actually happens, and I, particularly because I'm a person who loves change, most people are not, do not love change. They might say they do, but most people do not. And I, maybe I'm even fooling myself, actually, I say, with a little bit of self-awareness. I, I think that we all love to we love to be the kind of person that loves change, but change and, you know, my, my favorite quote in business is that change, growth and comfort don't coexist. And I would say that's true for individuals as true as it is for organizations. And really for me, 
it's hard work managing an organization for change and the only way to do it, the absolutely only way to do it is to bring your people along. And that means particularly for people of my generation who are working with, you know, kids, sorry, of my, of my children's generation, um, trying to understand and empathize for what it is that's that they're dealing with and whatever their reality is, you may not relate to it, but we owe it to, to all of them to try and understand it. And so, um, and have a little bit of empathy for each other. So for me, I do think if I could change anything that I did, it was, you know, I'm being very casual about like, what is everyone's problem? Like, we're going to like, we're going to die. If we don't do this, we have to like, everybody, you see the writing on the wall. Like we just have to do it. It's easy. Right. No, it's not, it's not easy. It's not. That's great. You, you know, you talked, you mentioned this very briefly, but it's something that I agree with, which is, you know, in calling for change, we also have to update our definition of change and how we get there and what it takes to change. So I think it's really important that you mention that. But speaking of the dramatic changes, not just within your organization, within the, the ever-changing landscape that we, the world that we live in, um, I can only imagine that these required, you know, perhaps new management or leadership techniques. So how did these challenges affect your leadership style, if at all? So I'm in a little bit of an unusual situation in that because I stepped into this leadership role as a president during the pandemic, I I went through my whole, I spent a lot of time studying for lack of a better phrase, studying leadership and what it is and what it means and what good leadership looks like. And because I was stepping into this big role. So that for me was kind of coinciding with everything else. But I, you know, I will tell you one thing that I've learned through this pandemic is that when we first uh, started working from home, there were a lot of managers who were worried whether their team like who are literally calling their team saying like, if you're sitting around doing nothing, I have I, like, take a learning class, take a, like just having no concept of that most people were actually working more. Some people were working less, I'm sure, but most people were working more. And in, in trying to manage a return to office through, first of all, as I said, the transition, I don't wanna say it was seamless, but we were working like many organizations, fine from home. Um, and so figuring out what returning to office looks like for us, we had kind of landed on a format. And then the Delta variant was like this whole other crazy thing because it was like, scientifically speaking, if I'm looking at the stats, it's safe to come back to the office. And I have friends who brought their organizations back to the office to not like, and we're, could be imperialistic about bringing their organizations back to the office. Like it's fine. Everybody get back. What I have observed in talking with the people here and in talking with managers who are talking with their teams is that like rational or not, people are feeling, feeling anxiety and like whether I'm feeling that anxiety, I share that anxiety. I have to respect the anxiety that the others are going through. And so for me, that really has been something that the pandemic has added is we all kind of, had to bring a lot more of our humanity 
to work with us. And, um, and as a result, I, I, I'm very much a believer in authentic leadership. Like if you want to be a good leader, you have to let people know who you are and what you're about. And um, I think for me, optimal management is to be able to do that. You want to be able to understand what your people that are working for you, working with you or what they are and what they're about at the same time. And so that definitely has been a fundamental change in my leadership since, you know, over this last year or so. And I think, a lot of it just has to do with, again, I've been a student of good leadership, um, but also I do think that the pandemic has definitely thrown a lot of that stuff into into highlights. And what I would say, like specifically when I think about finance, you said something at the very get-go that, um, that I want to bring up again, which was about finance people working and being creative. And I, while there's a, there's a creativity in artsiness, there's also a creativity and thought. And I think that a lot of times, especially now that the shared services model is on the rise, um, there is a, there, there's a possibility of, of a shared services team starting to feel so removed from the business that they're, they're not, there's no room to be creative. And what I would say is as a leader, I see across this organization, everywhere all the time where creativity is happening just in people's thinking and their approach and their interest in changing things. I think there's so much value to be added by being creative about the way that you approach your work every day. And I don't think it has to be, you know, limited to, to the arts. I think there's plenty of creative muscle to be flexed as finance people. And I think we'll, you know, by and large, we're all very much the better for it. And organizations are the better for it, too. I definitely 110% agree. And I think that ties into a lot of um, the comments that you have been making with regards to change is specifically in talking about creativity and authentic leadership. It requires an updating of, you know, what are our definitions of creativity and why have we limited them for so long simply to the arts and media industries when really we can be creative in almost anything that we approach or want to think about or talk about. So I'm really glad that you brought that up because it's almost a clear example of the testament that I believe that, you know, creativity is not limited to to artists. Everyone is a creative. No. You just have to learn how to not unblock it, but learn what is your creativity? How do you define it and how do you get there? So I'm, yeah. I'm really glad that you brought that up. And and if I may even continue to comment on that, I'll just like share with everybody at this like big aha moment I had the other day, I was watching this video and it was talking, it was about diversity and inclusion and like what a, what an inclusive leader looks like. And I'm listening, this guy is amazing. And And at one point he says something that was like, oh my God, he's so right, which was, it doesn't matter what your diversity statistics look like if you're not creating an environment in your meeting rooms that allows everybody to speak up and be creative, right? It allows people the room to feel safe in being creative in the way that they approach business. And I thought, he's so spot on. Yes, he's so spot on when it comes to diversity, but I think just generally speaking, the thing that I've been thinking a lot about lately is how do you create a meeting room where everyone feels comfortable speaking up? I 
of all the things that I've messed up since I've stepped into this job, there's one that like really sticks out in my mind. It was total, um, bother anyone with the details of it. It was a total mess up on my part and on the part of many of, of, of the gr- a group of us that had come together to handle a problem. And we did a postmortem after the explosion. We like gave ourselves some breathing room. We all got to back together again. And we said, okay, let's do a postmortem. Like what would we have done differently? And to a person and myself included, everyone said, among other things, but there was one recurring theme, which was, I wish I'd spoken up. I knew that wasn't going to go. You know what? I am down in my gut. I knew that wasn't going to go well. I wish I had spoken up. And for me coming out of that meeting thinking, oh my God, everyone on that team in that meeting that I was running is telling me that for whatever reason, that environment was not conducive to them speaking up. And these are many of these people are people I work with day in, day out, who are perfectly honest with me all the time about many things. And so lately that I spent a lot of time thinking about that, like kind of dissecting what is it about what, what it's going to be hard work to be able to create that environment. It's not just about not yelling at people. If they say something out of line, I think it goes way beyond that and, and actually figuring out how to support people in getting their voice, getting their brains to go to their mouth to like, and if we all, if, if any, if even one of those people had spoken up, the outcome could have been so different. And so that to me goes back to why diversity is important in terms of business and why it's so important to create an environment in a room where everyone does feel comfortable speaking up. I am so glad that you bring up the topic about speaking up because it is a perfect transition to our question and answer session. So now I'm going to invite the attendees who are here with us. Um, And I hope that Regina and I have created an environment that has allowed you to speak up and submit your questions. And I'm really glad that some of the attendees have. So I'm going to switch gears and take a couple questions from the attendees. Um, And I I really encourage everyone who's listening and here with us virtually to please submit any questions that you have for Regina and we'll get to as many as we possibly can. But I'm going to start with one that I think you mentioned. You touched upon this topic very briefly earlier on in our conversation, which was about substacks. But what do you think of journalists breaking off and starting their own substack? I... So I'm not a journalist and I'm not speaking for the journalists at the guardian here, but I, as a business person, I, I believe that what consumers want is ultimately what's going to drive good business. And so look, I subscribe to several sub stacks. I, I think that there are things that journalistic organizations offer, um, someone with an opinion in a newsletter or a, uh, with a powerful voice in a newsletter. I think there are things that we offer that they can't get through Substack. You know, we have infrastructure for just all of the things that journalists, frankly, don't want to deal with day in and day out. One of my favorite newsletters is an industry newsletter about media called The Rebooting. And it's written, um, it's written by a guy who used to be the editor-in-chief of one of our industry publications, a guy named Brian Morrissey. And he just actually recently did like a 12-month recap on his own existence as a one-guy media platform. And um, he very much, I think, would agree with me in this idea that 
that one revenue stream isn't necessarily the only way. Um, but I think that he would also say that Substack has done great things for him and what he wanted out of his own career and his life over the past year. And I definitely, um, I love to see smart people out there expressing their voices. And um, as I said, I think there's pros to being with a journalistic organization and pros to being on your own. And I think there's going to be plenty of room for plenty of journalists on both sides of that equation. And so the next question that I have from you from the, the audience is, what can the general media learn from public radio and public TV in terms of respecting users' privacy and avoiding government intervention? I'm pausing here because I, I know obviously the obvious things about the business models for, for the NPRs of the world, but I don't have deep knowledge of how those work. Um, I do know that the government gives them a lot of money and that the government has threatened to intervene, um, even if it has not so far. Um, I, I can tell you what we learned from those models is we, we very much look to them when we're looking at a donation model. When we look at our donation model, we look to them for inspiration um, in terms of how to collect money from consumers. Um, I think the most difficult thing, if I'm to imagine myself being in the seat of the leader of a of a public, publicly funded or partially publicly funded organization is there's only, there's only a few people, there's, there's say from a few people and there's funding from a few people. And it, I don't think it's as dangerous as what I was alluding to before about the media industry over relying on Facebook. But ultimately when you're reliant on funding from something that is not necessarily in your control. I think that 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 does cause a bit of a challenge. Um, that causes a bit of a challenge. But I'm look, I'm a card carrying PBS member for sure. I'm a big fan of public television and public radio. And um, and for us, I would say, yeah, it's the donation model that we look at. And I think there are a lot of organizations that have paywalls or don't have paywalls that are starting to look at the Guardian um, also as a, as a donation model. And I think we're, we'll all, all of us inspired by public television. I think there'll be a lot more, um, organizations with that kind of revenue stream. So I would say that for me, that's the biggest, most obvious learn. Thank you so much. I personally, I know I've truly enjoyed the conversation and having you here with us virtually. So I want to say thank you. And in the interest of time, I believe that we can wrap up the session. And so I'll hand it over to Michelle. But thank you again, Regina, for everything that you shared with us, for being here with us virtually. Um, I'm sure everyone must have found this conversation extremely insightful. Thanks, Shivani. It was really fun, too.